Welcome back to the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. So here it is. This is our final episode on Chapter 2. Nine episodes in total. I was uh, starting to think we were actually never going to leave this chapter, that we might actually be imprisoned <laughs> in it in some way, though. I love this chapter, so not a terrible prison. But uh, yeah, this is the second discussion episode. We're going to talk about the ways that Wolf invokes both the past and the future in this chapter. I think we'll probably try to balance those against each other as well. Uh, we've got a section where we're going to talk about you know, why there are all these stories within the story in this chapter. But you know, before we do something like that, we actually need to talk about those stories on their own as these sort of self-contained narratives. And so that's where we're going to start today. And so I guess really it's, it's up to you, Brandon, which of these other fairy tales that uh, you want to start with? Yeah, I mean, there is still just a lot to cover in this chapter, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> you know, these these other two fables or folklore stories, we have to do, we have to still go deep into the text before we talk about some of the conceptual things that Wolf is doing in this chapter. I mean, this is some of the dentist literature I've read in a very long time. And that's not even to say that we still have to talk about some stray observations as well, which I think will probably fold into anything else. So I'm going to take these stories in the order they show up in the text. So the next tale that we get, uh, you know, we closed last episode with the first fable, the first fairy tale that that uh, Weir was reading in bed. The next tale we get is a bit of Irish folklore. This story comes from Doherty, who is Stuart Blaine's hostler. And Doherty tells Weir this tale when Weir is sent out to play with the puppies after Olivia Blaine Weir and Mr. Uh, Rice Pies or Recipe's <laughs> dinner because, you know, Blaine has business to do. And God, I can't imagine being Olivia during this horrible business conversation after dinner. What Blaine is really doing here is have Olivia playing wife while he conducts business. It's awful. But anyway, we're not talking about that. We're talking about this folk tale. And it's a tale that Doherty has heard from his grandmother. Doherty's grandmother was Weir's housekeeper's housekeeper when Weir's housekeeper was a child. That's Hannah, who we met in chapter one. This is like a Dr. Seuss tongue twister here. I know. I <laughs> should, didn't even write all that out. I had to make it clear in my mind here. But uh, this, uh, this story begins as a tale about Finn McCool. And it becomes a story about the founding of America as the earthly paradise via St. Brandon, the Irish monk known for his voyage in the 7th century. Um, there's a speculation that St. Brandon may have touched down in North America, and so was an earlier discoverer, so to speak, of the land that, you know, Glenn, you and I live in and that we now call America as well. St. Brandon set out to look for the Garden of Eden or the earthly paradise. I mean, Eden just means earthly paradise, basically. So, what we have here in this story on a genre level is something that combines hagiography, legendary history, and folk story, as well as oral tradition. And also because it's about animals doing deeds and it has a moral, it's a fable. So that's a lot to unpack. And I don't know how much we can really unpack here in this episode because we have a lot to cover. But Glenn, I, I feel like we have to start by just me asking you, if you felt that Wolf had something on his mind by 
mashing up all of these genres. Right. Uh, so I'm really interested in this in this question. I'm interested in this impulse that you, you, you have here that I think I have too, to break this story down and to see it as being a mashup of these different genres. But I'm not actually sure that that's what Wolf is doing. I'll save, you know, sort of my my statement about that for, I don't know, three minutes of monologuing from, from now, hopefully. But <laughs> let's just actually talk about like what these genres are that you're invoking here anyway, right? What So hagiography, right? That's uh, saints' lives. And like, hey, look, this is a story about St. Brandon. So automatically then that is a, a type of hagiography. Uh, hagiography is uh, a type of text, I mean, you know, mostly really popular in uh, the, the Middle Ages. And it's a, a genre of text that actually has formed uh, the bulk of my own uh, academic research on the the fall of the Roman Empire, looking at local figures, mostly bishops, some monks, some uh, just regular old uh, priests who got wrapped up in the, the military or political affairs of the disintegration of the Western Roman Empire. So I've spent a lot of time uh, reading and uh, thinking about hagiographies, holding actual manuscripts, uh, medieval manuscripts of hagiographies in my hands as well. And so, yeah, there's some of that going on here. And then, yeah, there is also then the fable business here where like, yeah, there's talking animals. There's clearly a kind of moral message here. And absolutely that is, you know, the the requirements for calling something a fable. I, I was a little unsure though, Brandon, what you meant by legendary history. I don't think that's actually something we get here. I'm not even sure I'd actually classify that as like a, a genre. Like, I don't know that that's a tag I would put on a, a genre, but I think, right, what you're invoking here is the Finn McCool stuff. But the Finn McCool tradition is similar to the Arthurian tradition in that, well, one, it's it's medieval. I guess that's important. But also it's composed of texts written by dozens, really even probably scores of authors over a pretty long period of time. And in fact, with Finn McCool, it's actually longer than medieval Arthurian stories. Like the tradition of this is is longer. It's a period of seven or eight centuries, you know, depending on how we date some of the, the texts. And some of these texts are in prose. Some of them are in verse. That's actually a really interesting characteristic of medieval Irish literature in general. But they're just telling stories, right? They're They're really more comparable to Homer rather than to like Herodotus. And so I don't know that history is really appropriate for the, the the Finn McCool stories here, that they always would have been treated as a kind of like fantasy story. Like what's the equivalent of like a, you know, just like a high fantasy novel now. But both of these medieval figures here, right, Brandon and Finn McCool, they both appear in this story as kind of uh, like folktale pastiche, I think, of their high literary selves. And so the whole thing really does feel very much like a story that would appear, I think, in one of the 19th century collections of European folktales. The Grimm collection writes the most famous of them, though it's Andrew Lang who we get explicitly in this story, right, with the, the Green Fairy book. And so I think, you know, just to come back around to really answering the question that you asked, Brandon, to me, this feels less like Wolf blending different genres together. And it really feels more like he's writing his own pastiche of something that he actually would encounter in the Green Fairy book. I think that's right as well. And, and and the way you unpacked what I mean by legendary history is exactly, I think, what's meant by the term as it's informally used to describe 
like the legendary past, you know, the remote past from the people who began collecting stories, say of like King Arthur or even Finn McCool, uh, things like that to talk about the history of a land in terms of its legends and folk heroes and that and that sort of thing. Uh, it's it's a it is an informal term. I don't know how widely it's used, but I certainly come across it myself uh, in, in in my own reading. Well, I do think it is a term that a 19th century folklorist or anthropologist would use because they desperately wanted to believe in their own like nationalist connections to these types of stories, <laughs> even though the contemporaries who wrote them and who listened to them performed at uh, medieval dinner parties and stuff did not actually believe that they were telling any sort of like factual uh, accounts of things that happened in the past of their of their country. Like no one, no one actually thought that in the middle ages. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. It's not history in the sense of like uncovering facts. It's more, um, like it's oral tradition is really what it is that, that becomes written down and, uh, describes the, the founding of a people based on a legendary figure or something along those lines. So anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> I, I think I think you're actually really on to something when you're talking about how Wolf isn't actually mashing up genres, though he is maybe combining historical or legendary figures or uh, saints and things like that. Um, what he's doing is really a mode of oral tradition. And I think it's explicitly the case that Doherty is adapting this story he heard on the fly that was passed down to him to suit the moment that he's telling the story. And so he's combining these things more as a mode of oral tradition than as a literary mashup or pastiche, which Wolf is doing. But I think Wolf is saying more about how oral traditions function, how stories change to suit the moment. And that's something that we'll be talking about when we talk about how all these stories are used in the text a little bit later on. But what interests me most about this story, and this is something we touched on in the recap, is that it is essentially a theodicy. It is a story, in this case, it's a fable, that is an explanation for why there's suffering in the world. The standard Christian explanation for this, uh, is, or Catholic, if you happen to be an Irish a folklorist and storyteller <laughs> in the 1920s, is that, you know, God turns all things toward his purposes, which are inherently good. And this even includes evil actions. And I mentioned in our recap episode that covered this chapter that the argument for why suffering exists as it's given to us in this story is deeply unsatisfying. We have like an evil rat who was also commissioned by the king to kill the fairy cat, is who was supposed to be the hero of this story. Uh, the rat is evil because he just doesn't like doing God's will, but he does what God needs because it's in the rat's nature to chew ropes, which is kind of a particular evil in relation to, say, Brandon and the boat. But the anchor is attached to a rope on this boat, and St. Brandon needs someone to cut the rope because he can't haul up the anchor. So it's in the rat's nature to do what he does, but he's unhappy on some level when he finds out that it actually ends up serving God. And I don't know, Glenn, is this a satisfying explanation to you for the problem of evil or suffering in this world? I mean, no, not at all. Absolutely not. Right. I mean, like, yeah, maybe this seems fine if we're just talking about a rat chewing a, a rope and launching this ship out into the sea, like, I don't know, you know, a week earlier or something like that. But it's a totally unsatisfying answer uh, about why some of the most awful things happen, right? Like, 
why children die. Uh, Even just thinking about in terms of stuff happening in this novel, this is a totally unsatisfying explanation for the death of Bobby Black. It's a totally unsatisfying explanation for the death of the Lawrence first child. It's certainly not a satisfying answer for genocide. It's it's not even a satisfying answer for for poverty. It, it's a terrible explanation for why there's evil in the world. It, it's it's the worst. This is like the worst theodicy I've ever come across <laughs> in my entire life. But it does get really complicated by, as you pointed out, the conversation with M. Lorne about the loss of their child and the way that Weir is maybe thinking about Bobby Black in some sense. But I guess I I should really ask you is, why is Weir getting this story at this point in his life? Why does the old Weir, thinking back on this moment, include this story at this point in the narrative? Yeah. There are different levels, I think, on which this story is operating. We're going to talk a little bit about what these stories even are, like as artifacts in the the novel that we're reading. But there are, I think, two ways of looking at this, right? And and in fact, I think even the way that you've phrased this, Brandon, is is passive, right? Like it's we're receiving a a lesson rather than uh, doing something active here. Because I think there are two other ways, two active ways of of putting that question. One is, hey, why did Wolf put this in the story here? Why why did Wolf put this in the novel? But another way is, why is Doherty telling this story to Weir? And I think I want to start there first, that I just have this real sense of of Doherty, who's maybe someone we should fan cast a little bit as this, you know, this hostler, this man who works with animals. And I, I think also kind of an older man who works with animals and is now caring for this nine-year-old boy who's been you know, essentially kind of kicked out of the dinner party uh, because, hey, nine-year-old kids are annoying when you're trying to hook up with their aunt. But also like, look, this is going to be a terrible place for Weir to be. So this is way better. Go play with the horses, go play with the dogs. But Doherty knows who Weir is. Doherty knows why Weir is here, why he's living with his aunt. So here's a story told to a kid who knows that he has caused the death of someone else, the death of another child. And here's a story about why bad things happen in the world. And although I'm totally unsatisfied with this as an explanation for why Bobby Black had to die, it might actually be satisfying to a nine-year-old. Maybe. Uh, You know, Maybe. I <laughs> I have a few <laughs> thoughts here on this story that are going to take a moment for me to to kind of present here. But, you know, one thing that really strikes me about this story is that the king who seems to commission both the rat and then through Finn McCool the cat is some kind of symbol of the divine as well. So he's behind, you know, this moment in the story where the earthly paradise is reached, and then the cat and the rat get off the boat and fight each other. And yet these creatures both cut themselves to ribbons, and those pieces that are cut off run into the forest. And we'll talk about that in a, in a moment with these odd pieces of a fairy cat and an evil rat running into the earthly paradise and infest it in some sense and whatever. But, you know, I think that this weak argument that is given as a theodicy that, you know, that evil is something that's very simple, like, which is kind of true, but also it's not, um, that, you know, the rat it's in his nature to be to to two ropes and that this ended up being a good thing. Um, that this simplicity is answered later on when we see M Lorne having to kind of shrug her shoulders 
at her own suffering when she faces the reality that not only has life not turned out the way she had hoped, but that also her first child was taken from her and it died, you know, without any real cause or explanations. And what we see with M. Lorne, I think, what Wolf is demonstrating with M. Lorne, what Weir is writing about, is that our groping for meaning in these moments doesn't always have enough explanatory power to console us. We have to keep on living. We have to keep going on. And it it seems to me that Weir doesn't even realize that he's making a connection between this weak pat fable about why they're suffering in the world and the encounter with M. Lorne's, I don't know, she's not quite stalled out, but her struggling with these concepts in real time as she's living her life, that Weir doesn't realize he's making these connections at all. And so I guess I do have a question for you, Glenn, if anything that I've said just made sense, is, <laughs> is, if, you, is if you think that this decision to not explicitly make these connections is a structural or like architectural decision of wolves in the text that's left for us, the reader to understand, or if we're more supposed to get the sense that we're is making an explicit connection and we just have to dig deeper to make sense of it. Yeah, right. We we can't disentangle Weir and Wolf here when we're we're trying to think about these the, these things. And I think we're going to be coming back to this question again and again of like what things in here are Weir as a character who Wolf has invented telling us a story and what stuff is Wolf telling us a story, right? That's and and I don't know that we're going to have a single coherent answer. I mean, I'm not even sure that was a single coherent question to be honest right there. <laughs> we're we're both we're both struggling with this right now, but yeah, I I see Wolf here rather than Weir. I don't think that Weir is actually being quite as self-reflective. In fact, I think if anything, what we're witnessing here is this old man who seems to have not led a particularly good life, like a virtuous life. That's certainly my sense. You know, we've talked a lot uh, in the last episode about how he's modeled himself seemingly after Stuart Blaine, uh, which is just a terrible idea. And also how he, even in writing this narrative, has still not taken any kind of uh, responsibility for, or even just agency for the death of Bobby Black. And so I don't think he is conscious of these types of connections as he's writing this story. And so the act of writing this story perhaps is actually going to reveal some of these connections to him. It's kind of like, you know, journaling as a type of therapy, I think is what Weir is is doing here. And I think that is Wolf as architect showing us a character who is doing that. And perhaps we'll see something, see things the way we're seeing them and learn a lesson from them or may not. <laughs> but in either case, it's still going to be a lesson for us, the reader. I, I think that's right. I don't think Weir realizes he's making these connections at all. Yet, if he were to go back and read his journal, so to speak, his memoir, he might wonder, hey, why did I remember this story in relation to the affair of the Chinese egg, and then also write about M. Lorne's groping for meaning in her own suffering in her life that she's encountered. Somebody who's devout, who's, who still isn't able to make sense of why we suffer 
if God is good, why we can't even say this was good because it's not, there's no causality there. And this is a book that I don't think we've emphasized enough is really devoid of so far something like spiritual growth or spiritual meaning. Like this idea that we saw in a few of Wolf's stories, as he re- has referenced the the Carmelites of the Dark Night of the Soul, is not a part of the vocabulary of the characters in Cashinsville that we've met so far. Not even M. Lorne, who was kind of a, a devout Christian. Yeah, we're still not at all clear on the religious life of like Weir's family. There's a, a weird bit in chapter one where uh, Weir's maternal grandfather in the, the Christmas scene refers to Weir's father as a, like a church man or a church going person. But that's not a thing that we see here in the story at all. Uh, Eleanor Bold makes a point of actually, you know, saying that she's not the sort of person who's going to go to a church picnic. And I don't really think that any of these characters seem to be people who go to church. We've certainly not had any church going narrated here. And so it's totally possible that this is a, a family that is wrapped up in the the death of uh, a, a little boy who is the, the son of their friends who have not done much of anything actually to talk with their own son, their own family member uh, about why bad things happen to good people and what we're actually like for as people, what we're supposed to be doing in this life that we're clearly has just been abandoned in this moment of, of real crisis. I, I would think with, no one to talk to about it. Like he doesn't have a kind of, you know, he does not seem to have a kind of religious leader of any sort that he can go to and like ask questions about. His parents are are gone. They've just left him with Aunt uh, Olivia, who also just doesn't seem to spend any time with him, right? I think the evidence is pretty clear that he feels like he's just supposed to stay in his room and read his books, except for when he's supposed to clean out the dog kennels and stuff. And and that is such a stark contrast with Mrs. Lorne, who has like a type of framework, a type of cosmology to think about the death of a child. It doesn't maybe end up doing very much for her in terms of like providing solid answers, but it does at least encourage her to actively think about and work through her grief, which we're just we just don't see we're getting at all. It occurs to me, kind of as we're thinking about the religious life or the spiritual life of the people in this town, that the town hub, like especially as we see this chapter organized around the affair of the Chinese egg, like the whole town gets involved, all of this stuff, that like the gossip circle that spirals out into the home life of these people and and where they end up, that the, the real town hub, the cultural center of the town is McAfee's department store. It's, it's not a church. And I wonder then, uh, and, and we'll have to see as we go forward, if Wolf is making a point about uh, materiality, maybe replacing a religious center as culture in America or something like that. Right. I mean, this actually is something that we see in the fifth head of Cerberus as well, right? It's a, it's a culture where uh, we get some kind of veneer of religiosity, but don't actually see anyone really doing any anything <laughs> religious and it's not really there. And then the two principal 
characters that we get in the fifth head of Cerberus are on the one hand, uh, someone who owns a, a business, runs a, a you know commercial enterprise. It happens to be a brothel staffed by sex slaves who also is a mad scientist in his basement. And uh, on the other hand, we get an anthropologist. And we might have an anthropologist in this story too, actually. <laughs> That's right. Well, I have one more question I want to ask about this uh, section of the story. And it has nothing to do with the theodicy really here, <laughs> though maybe it does in a weird way. Uh, we talked briefly about this, the pieces of the evil rat and the fairy cat running into the earthly paradise, you know, also known as America here. What's going on with this in your mind? Like, what do these things represent? Yeah, this is this is nuts. I don't know what you know. Like, this is an allegory <laughs> for here. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a creepy, hilarious image. But I do think that probably right. This is not as we're going to talk about later. This is not the only invocation of uh, pre-Columbian America. It's not the only image of America as an earthly paradise that we get in this chapter. Uh, also, we've we've had it in chapter one as well. And so I think that we have to imagine that what's going on here is that these pieces of an evil rat and then also a fairy cat are contaminating the earthly paradise, right? Because that's a big part of the images that we've gotten of pre-Columbian America or, you know, like the moment of contact, the, the Christopher Columbus moment of contact is actually seeing the European presence in the Americas as a, you know, kind of like a really kind of an invasive species, I guess, which is an image that's called the mind here with rats and cats, which are two of the greatest uh, invasive species uh, on the planet. Cats, I mean, just like terrible, a terrible invasive species everywhere in the world. Right. And, and you know, thinking of it in terms of, uh, of a theodicy of God turning evil to his own good as, as part of his larger master plan, there is also a real tie in the images, especially of Columbus. And we'll, we'll touch on this a little bit more later uh, about God's providence as well, which we briefly touched on in our last episode. So the idea that the founding of America by Columbus was part of God's good plan uh, for the earth, for the people of earth, is also tied to this image of evil maybe being turned to good in some sense, though, you know. That's a complex image, and I'm not sure what to do with it, or even if we've gotten it right here. Well, there is, I think, some depiction, and and we'll we'll get back to this later, right? But there, I mean, there is a depiction of a sense of America almost as a kind of like you know uh, fantastical place, this kind of magical place, right? I mean, uh, really, maybe to put it this way, right? There's something to uh, the image of America as the shining city on a hill in this story, right? This kind of belief in this beautiful, like virtuous, uh, ideal version of America that, you know, is, is something that's aspirational, something we're supposed to aspire to. Yeah, that, that's an excellent point as well. Well, let's move on from this story and talk about the last story that we get presented to us in this text. And this story is really interjected between this moment right before and right after a storm begins while Weir is in a car with his aunt and McAfee on their way to the Lorns, you know, to deal with this affair of the Chinese egg. Uh, the story tags Scheherazade, who is the key storyteller in 1001 Nights. And just briefly, the frame story of 1001 Nights is a story about really a stay of execution, essentially. The king in this frame story 
really just wants to kill as many women as he possibly can because a few that he knows, including his wife, unfortunately, have been unfaithful to him. So that's something to keep in mind, I suppose. But anyway, the story we get in peace is this. Uh, this also has a frame story. So it's two frames down apart apart from um, what we get in peace. The frame of this story is that a guy opens the stopper of some thing and asks the gin inside to tell him a story because he's weary. So the gin, who is a slave when summoned, tells a story about a slave of uh, Merid who falls in love with a woman with dark hair who is good at music. And this slave decides then it's kind of a choice to work for 30 more years for the Merit, who's named Naranj, meaning orange, in order to obtain this woman. And so he does. And then the Merit flies this servant slash slave to a place called the Haunted City and says, uh, yeah, she's inside somewhere. And meanwhile, the servant is just a hobbled mess who spent his life selling Sherbert. So in her recap episode, I pointed out, you know, really thanks to the excellent work of Mark Aramini, that Ben Yaya, and that's the name of the servant here, means son of John. And John is the name of Weir's father. So this must be a story about Weir. Then based solely on that, I wonder if this story really gives you any deeper insights into what's going on in the broader scope of this novel. What does this story communicate to you? What analogs do you see between this story and anything else we've encountered so far? Well, I think writ large, right, the story here of of Ben Yaya is the story about a man who spent his youth and also spent his health chasing a dream. And the story ends with out him actually getting the, the the object that he had in mind, the goal of all of that that labor, the goal of spending his youth and his his health, and so there's a sense maybe not so much in that story, but like that he might end up coming to regret this choice that he's not really going to get the thing that he was promised, and uh, maybe regrets not quite right, but he, he, at this point anyway, where the story ends, he doesn't really have anything to show for it, and. That description could actually apply to Weir, right, who is recovering from a stroke right now, is worried about his his health. We know that he never married. He made a lot of money. He pursued wealth as, uh, you know, an, an object here, modeling himself, we think, on, on Stuart Blaine, uh, just perhaps was a greedy person in the world and made a lot of money, he has this uh, amazing mansion that I think is, you know, full of ghosts for him, but seems to have squandered all of that money and can't really operate or maintain this house and is just living in one room of it with a, a fire in the, the fireplace. And so, yeah, that might be kind of an analog here, I suppose. Yeah. The thing that really jumped out to me, just based on the textual evidence that we have already, uh, and you mentioned that this house uh, that Weir lives in feels haunted, and it certainly is, at least by objects, is this this haunted city to me feels like an analog to Weir's mansion. And that Ben Yaya goes and inhabits the city still in search of this thing that he loves. And that's kind of the frame of peace at this point. Weir has gotten to a point where he's hobbled with age and a medical ailment that he's trying to recover from. He's in this impossible mansion and he's in search of something that he he's not quite sure why. It's this pocket knife, 
But all of his memories are about these relationships that he's had that have all gone pretty poorly. And so the haunted city to me is this weird mansion on some level. And I have the sense, you know, I think we've been we've been dancing around this a little bit. I think you and I both are predicting that Margaret Lorne is going to end up being more significant in this book than she has been so far. And so, uh, you know, I think it's totally possible that the, the woman in this story, the woman he sees in the tower is Margaret Lorne. And that might actually help explain you know, where this story just kind of comes out of nowhere. It's just apropos of, of nothing, seemingly, though it is also perhaps connected to the, the discovery of this Persian room in his house. But I think there's a way of reading the, the glimpse of this woman, you know, in the window as actually a kind of analog for what happens with Margaret Lorne and Weir in the affair of the Chinese egg, where in the fairy tale here, we get Ben Yaya, uh, you know, crashing down off of his uh, barrel of sherbet that he has to wear as a, a backpack, <laughs> which is just nuts. Uh, we get that image and we can maybe pair that up with what actually happens in the barn, right? When Margaret Lorne is showing Weir the barn and she says, hey, check it out. There's a billy goat in here. If you you know sit this way and do this with the door, you can see the billy goat uh, without getting hurt by him, even if the the goat charges at the door here and Weir doesn't do it right. The goat does uh, charge at the door and knocks him over, makes him crash, right? So we could even see that kind of crashing there as something that exists in in both stories wrapped up in a kind of fleeting encounter with uh, a, a, a woman or at least, you know, Margaret Lawrence, a girl really at this point in the story, right? But uh, a kind of you know fleeting encounter that might have some romance tinged to it. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And, you know, we're going to have to keep these stories in mind as we continue to read the novel and, and put the pieces together. But I don't think there's too much more we can do with this story just yet. So now that we've gone through these three stories, including the one we covered last episode, the fairy tale from the Green Book of Fairy Tales, and we've examined their relationship with the kind of real, quote unquote, portions of the narrative a little bit. Let's take a moment to address what Weir is doing by adding these stories to the narrative. And then maybe after that, we should examine what we think Wolf is doing. So the first question we really need to ask here is, do these stories really exist in Weir's world? Like, does he have some parallel version, parallel universe version of the Green Fairy book that has the suitors in it? Does he have a new weird copy of uh, A Thousand and One Tales that we don't have access to? Or do you think, Glenn, that we're the narrator is making these up and pretending that he heard or, or, or read them as a child? Yeah, this goes back to you know question we were just talking about, which is, is we're cognizant of the connections between and among these stories is we're really aware of how much these stories uh, reflect on what's actually happened to him in his real life and are, are ways that he could actually think about, you know, like the death of Bobby Black, for example, and try to heal from that and some of these other things as well, right? It, it's does we're know what he's doing or, or not. And I don't have a solid answer here about like the truthful existence of of these stories in this world right we've been shown the green fairy book and it you know it's definitely called that in chapter one we can i think surmise that that is the book that he's got here in chapter two though it's not explicitly stated it's not listed as being green but the description of the experience of the book is a way one would describe experiencing the green fairy book with the illustrations and some of the stories being uh too long for one reading and some of the them not. 
So I think that, you know, we can safely say that we could also easily be disproved by other other readers, by some of our, our listeners. Uh, but I think that we could safely say, at least, that this is likely to be the Green Fairy book. And then we definitely have the Ben Yaya story being pitched as, being presented as a part of A Thousand and One Nights, right? So yeah, this question of like, are they actually... <laughs> do these stories actually exist in the green fairy book and a thousand and one nights in the world of this story where like the versions of these books that exist here in our real world don't exist, right? That's not something that I thought Wolf was doing, you know, like in the first 50 pages of this book, but I'm starting to think that he might be actually. And part of why I'm starting to think that is the river, the river flowing the wrong way it suggests to me that we are in a kind of mirror universe. So I might actually think that these stories really exist, that Weir has read them, and that they just very, very, very strangely happen to mirror the story of his own life and Olivia's life. Yeah, I, I get that sense as well. I certainly don't get the sense that Weir knows what he's doing. I don't think Weir is making these connections. And that that's why I think where we see the distinction between Wolf and Weir, where Wolf is putting us in... Weir's like totally subjective, near stream of consciousness thought about this time as he's reflecting, but Wolf is acting as an architect of these thoughts in a, in a strange way. You know, he's the wizard who shows up in wolf skins <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and makes the connections that would otherwise be invisible to us. I, I guess then that leads us to the question of what you think Wolf as the architect is doing by putting these stories in Weir's words, is putting these stories in the novel piece. What is he communicating to us as the readers? Yeah, I think there's a lot going on here. I mean, one thing that is, you know, maybe a real simple thing to say about Wolf's own relationship with uh, stories that he read as a youth, presumably A Thousand and One Nights, presumably The Green Fairy Book, uh, that Wolf has a real fondness, a real attachment to the stories that he read when he was a kid, uh, something that we've talked about in other episodes, something you're actually getting ready to be writing about, writing a scholarly article about, is in fact about the way that Wolf portrays children reading and engaging with stories as a, a form of escape in their lives that, you know, I think we've all done, you know, at some point in our in our lives. It was a big part of my childhood. It seems very clearly to have been a big part of, of Wolf's childhood as, as well, the, the way that he writes about it with such pathos. And so, you know, that's one thing that's going on here is simply that this is a motif that runs through Wolf's work, really, you know, almost all of it up until this, this point. Yeah, I think that's right. It gives a certain type of emotional core to the story that I think Wolf can sometimes be accused of as not having put in his books like things that draw emotions out of us. And yet when you go deep into the subjectivity of these characters, there's a, a profound sadness in the characters in the way that they need these stories to explain what is a disorganized or abusive, in Weir's case, I think abuse through neglect in their childhood and that those emotions are dangerous. So they're not discussed, but they're kind of approached through this safer mode of storytelling. Um, and I think that's a kind of trick of Wolf's that's heartbreaking. I mean, when you think about it, but maybe not will evoke a certain emotional palette as you read it. 
One other thing I want to say about what I think Wolf is doing with these stories is, you know, just on the idea of literary theory or technique, is saying something about how story cycles and oral traditions and folk stories stop getting passed down or changed or altered to meet the needs of the present moment once they're bound in books. We start thinking of them as historical artifacts instead of a culture we actively participate in. And I think Wolf is on some level exuberantly participating in these traditions of storytelling and adding his own spin to them and saying these stories are for adaptation to the present moment. And I wonder if you got that same sense as well from the way these stories are used in the text. I mean, I think that is completely a, a mission statement of, of Gene Wolfe's fiction writing, right? Like it's <laughs> it's all over this, right? This idea that stories are uh, so important. Stories matter to us. Stories are how, or at least not maybe not like the only way, but they are an important way, an important method for us to make sense of the world around us, especially for children, right? That is a huge part of, of what Wolfe is doing in so much of his work. And we might even be able to pair that idea here in this book, in this chapter in particular, with uh, the way that Wolf is is showing other people engaging with objects from the past, or, or or not even just objects from the past, but engaging with you know the past, right? Stories from the past, objects from the past, uh, and kind of I think contrasting that actually with the way that Weir, as the old man narrating this story, is still actively thinking about stories that he read when he was a child, stories he encountered as a, a, a child, and using them, perhaps unwittingly, to deal with his own trauma, to deal with his own uh, emotional life. Yeah. Well, Glenn, you've evoked history in the past, and hey, that's the next <laughs> topic on our outline. So let's just move into that now. We've mentioned in our last episode, and Glenn, you just mentioned, you know, uh, about the importance, uh, the way that history is woven into this story. You know, we've talked about how each of the suitors that are in this chapter bring out these different senses of history or the past to weir. Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But what we should do is first catalog and look at some of the more general historical digressions that are found in this chapter. I mean, one that we've really been keeping a close eye on is the different narratives about the, the founding of America. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, historical digressions in in the book so far, but chapter two, I think especially, I won't catalog them all. I'll just give some examples. And then I think, yeah, we should be grouping them together and sort of seeing what Wolf is up to. But, you know, we get a real standout one that's like a, a kind of classic example, actually, of a, a digression from a classical or medieval uh, history. And that is the section that where we get the history and geography of Cashinsville. But we also get a lot of, of digressions uh, during the, the trek up to Eagle Rock, where we get you know the giant sloth and thinking about the deep past, which includes uh, an invocation of uh, Altamira, which is this uh, you know prehistoric cave, or well, it's, it's a cave with prehistoric paintings is actually what I should say <laughs> there. Though I suppose the cave itself also is prehistoric. Uh, we get Paul Bunn in that moment, we get uh, the scholar uh, anthropologist uh, Herdlicka, uh, who proposed the the Bering Strait 
crossing hypothesis for the origins of Native Americans, which was pretty sensational, actually, at the, the moment that this story is taking place, but but pretty universally accepted by the time that Wolf was writing it and, you know, just like totally universally accepted now. Like, I think the only actual naysayers are people who think, you know, like, it was aliens, right? I don't think that there are actual like <laughs> don't, reasonable. Don't discount the ancient <laughs> alien theory. <laughs> well, you're right. You're right. I will not. Okay. Uh, we also get the uh, dinner conversation at Blaine's, right? About these family histories and the founding of Cashinsville. There's Doherty's story about St. Brandon. Obviously, we get, you know, I don't know if it's really quite a historical digression, but, you know, like the Thousand and One Nights is certainly a historical text in the sense it's a, a text from the past, right? So we get digressions and, and invocations, uh, you know, all over this chapter and those are really just a handful of them yeah it's pretty wild uh and and it's one thing that nobody prepared me for in reading this novel and it seems to not be discussed that much that as much as this is a memoir of alden dennis weir this is a novel about myths of america right so you brought up the native civilization in the cave you know, the the picnic to Eagle Rock. This is about how Native Americans got to America, the first discoverers, so to speak, of America. And this is this passage is in direct contrast with a passage we get earlier about Columbus, this this icon that Wolf sees of Columbus that's rooted in Christian iconography that gives Weir the sense that America was undiscovered, uncreated. The new world was uncreated before it was founded. So those two images are contrasting. Then we get the image of St. Brandon, who has this big boat from that goes from Ireland to Boston Harbor. That is another founding of America story. And, you know, we also get this apocalyptic imagery of the, the end of the earth, basically. But like interspersed with all of that, there's the American folklore of Paul Bunyan. So it's just, it's very strange. I don't really have a a strong question here. I mean, I guess one question to ask is what does Weir miss by thinking about America's history as a collection of these kinds of folk stories or anthropological studies or tales, in a sense. They're all tales to Weir at this point. Yes, and we're going to be taking up the, the the question of the relationship between, I think, history and like story telling where you know that's that's on the agenda here we're gonna we're gonna get to that but we'll deal with this first and yeah so there's an awful lot actually that we're misses by understanding america's past as this kind of collection of 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 stories in particular stories uh about these kind of heroic uh you know quasi-legendary figures and one of them is really just like the story of regular people that actually does appear in the saint brandon story where when they get to America, there's a sign that says uh, not hiring today. And so this is a story about the Irish immigrant experience, right? People who are trying to escape uh, a really harsh uh, and, and terrible existence in Ireland over several generations brought on by by famine and uh, colonialism and, and civil war, religious persecution and, and so on, and looking for a better life. 
and in particular looking for a better material life, right? People coming to America from Ireland to be able to take care of their their, their families in ways that they've not been able to do in Ireland. This is my own family personal history, right? I've got uh, a grandparent who came over as an immigrant from Ireland with uh, fewer siblings than she'd had in Ireland, for example. But then part of the experience was to get to America and discover that actually things maybe weren't as better as they had hoped they would be, that it was not actually the earthly paradise that they were promised, that yes, there's not a potato famine, uh, there's not the uh, oppression of the you know British Empire running Ireland, but that there is still severe and intense economic exploitation here in the, the throes of the, the, you know, the first and second industrial revolutions. And that's hinted at here in this story just by showing us this sign. But Weir doesn't think anything of it. Doherty doesn't actually mention it in the story. And so that type of experience of coming to America is not there. And what else is totally missing here is slavery. That is an experience that just does not exist in the understanding that nine-year-old Weir has of America. Slavery is something that's brought up quite a few times in this text. It's brought up explicitly in the uh, Scheherazade story, the 1001 Night story about this kind of slavery, the indentured servitude, at least. The jinn is a slave, though, explicitly. And then also, I think, with the relation to the Green family, who are often referred to as like slavies, which, you know, is like little slaves in a sense, using that <laughs> uh, sense of the word of the why uh, added on as a suffix there. So, racial slavery, racism, the treatment of the American Indians are all brought up in these modes of story. So like if you're thinking about the St. Brandon story as a story that is about the Irish exp immigrant experience in America, at least early on, you also can't avoid racism in that conversation either. Uh, the Irish were treated as a separate race, essentially. And maybe that's why we get these cats and rats running into the land and contaminated it because essentially on many levels, uh, that is how the Irish were seen in their, in the first big immigration from Ireland to America. Uh, and so that, that's a connection I hadn't made that not hiring here sign kind of, uh, was a little bit of, of a thorn in my side, but I think you've done a really good job of explaining why that's there and its connection to the Irish immigrant experience in um, kind of that first big wave of immigration from Ireland to America. And Weir's understanding of the native populations as well, uh, the, which we get more of in, in chapter one than in, in this chapter, really elides uh, the you know imperialist violence that has been done to <laughs> their people for, for centuries. And even though he is aware of the fact that the land that Cashinsville is on used to be inhabited by other people and that uh, his own ancestors are people who came and in, in some way, you know, if not directly, at least participated in a system that took that land from the Native Americans and has pushed them west. And, you know, in chapter one, something that we got was this depiction of Native Americans as as drunk and, and maybe kind of lazy. It's almost as if, right, like they got what they deserved from European immigrants. That's not something that I think is really advocated by Weir, but it is a, uh, and it's really presented as being kind of a, a trope of the way that Native Americans are depicted. But really, I guess what we're coming around to is that Weir's picture of 
of the founding of America and then the story of America from that moment is the type of picture that you get when you're a rich white kid. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's even present, I think, in Weir's, uh, I don't know, so to speak, innocent understanding of the geography of Cashinsville when he thinks about the land as part of these kind of European legends of the Knights Templar and maidens and codes of chivalry and all of that sort of stuff. And less as, again, another contrast that we see uh, textually when Professor Peacock shows up as people struggling to survive in maybe an inhospitable environment, you know, living in caves. Did they farm? Was there agriculture? All these sorts of questions, you know, about, say, the first settlers of America, particularly Cashinsville, don't interest Weir as much. They don't excite Weir as much as thinking of the land with this kind of European attitude. And we get that image as as part of this geography and history of Cashinsville world building that I thought was really fascinating. I mean, we think we actually may have spent an entire recap episode on that, if not an entire <laughs> one, like most of one where I was asking you about the direction of the river and, and I may have just turned into a total crazy person <laughs> for to deal with this section. But I, I still actually have questions uh, about that section of, of the text, that historical digression, which I, I guess really is just like, hey, what is that for? Because so far, we have not actually gotten any type of story that requires us to know like the the street names of 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 Cashinsville or the you know direction of the river or things about like the the bridges. We don't need to know any of that stuff in order to make sense of the plot of this story. so i I, I was not maybe sure what that digression was for at at this point again, I think it's it's meant to call to mind the same way that the iconography of Columbus and God's providence is in conflict with the founding of America as settlers crossing the Bering Strait, as these first peoples you know, lived in these caves or whatever, that it's to set up another contrast that points to our imagination of the land and its peoples primarily being rooted in Western civilization and European colonialism, as opposed to kind of a history that was cut short and cut off by that expansion and and colonialism. And I wonder if that's in the text, just to give us another sense of that contrast. Yeah. Something that occurred to me while you were were talking there, Brandon, is that the description of Cashinsville that we get really is the history and geography of Cashinsville. And what it really is, is the history of how some humans showed up in this part of the world and started to reorganize the geography to suit their needs, right? Uh, chopping down trees, getting rid of rocks to make uh, farms, you know, setting up the, the water mill, uh, even e- expanding the uh, land around the river to make space for more buildings, uh, putting streets on a, a obviously a, a grid pattern, which did not stand out to me because I'm a Midwesterner and believes that all cities that are not on a grid pattern are an aberration. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, there's a special place in hell for cities like that. Uh, uh, but so that's a but that's a weird thing, right? Just like making a grid pattern here, right angles, you know, like on on this bit of land that actually isn't suited for it. So they have to do things to the land to make it suitable for the the grid pattern and and so on, right? So this is a story of humans attempting to impose their own order on nature, which is something that we get 
also in the like apocalyptic images all throughout this story uh, as being kind of a futile, uh, futile effort. And that might be also what's going on with the, you know, the native civilization and the cave as, as well. So there might be a way that, you know, the Cashinsville uh, world building section, the geography and history digression is actually kind of linking the past uh, and the future by showing us the sort of futility of, you know, humanity's attempt to uh, take control of nature. Well, we we also get America contrasted with uh, another nation and peoples in this story, and that's China. Uh, Olivia's fascination, her, uh, I don't know, cultural fixation on some sense, uh, the way that comes out in the Chinese egg story, at least, that really jumped out to me, was that still for these people in Cashinsville that are interested in China, this Chinese egg in particular, it's a story about Christianity reaching China, not really about Chinese history, um, and about the use of Chinese symbols or cultural ideas to fold itself into what Christianity is, like the Manchurian as the guard uh, of Jesus's tomb, things like that. But what contrasts do you get? Uh, what do you think Wolf is doing in kind of setting China here up against these founding of America stories. I love all the the invocations of China here. I love the uh, you know bit of character building here for Olivia that she's really into uh, China, into Chinese language, Chinese art uh, especially, and is you know up to date on on current events about what's happening in in China. I think that's a real cool bit of of, of character building there. But something that really stands out with China in terms of of comparison to America is about. Uh, the you know, duration of civilization, the age of the civilization, right? That that we're seeing America in in this novel as young, uh, but also as ever changing, right? We do get three different like foundation stories here just in this one chapter. They certainly can't all be true, but two of them are fairly recent. We get the founding of Cashinsville, though then that's also contrasted with the fact that, of course, there was a civilization here before that, that we, you know, you just walk over to the cave and find uh, find relics from it, find remnants from it. But that we get the the story of Cashinsville in, in that digression, but we also do get it in the stories about uh, people, about Hannah uh, in particular is, is a great example, where we're told that her the home she grew up in isn't even there anymore. Uh, we also get, and I guess actually this is in the digression, in fact, but it's about Hannah uh, that the flora and in particular the the fauna in this area has changed because of the arrival of of settlers from Europe or you know the east coast of America, but European uh, in in sort of ultimate origin. But that even the civilization that they built when they showed up here a few generations ago is now gone, right? Like Hannah's home is gone. The mill is not there anymore. Even the Weir family has moved on to doing something else in order to have its wealth. That seems also to be true of uh, Blaine's family also, right? So it's just young, you know, America's young. It's also just ever changing, right? Generation to generation, just changing and changing and changing. Whereas... At least for Olivia, China seems to represent the, the you know the oldest continuous civilization, which is a thing that is often said uh, about China in 
uh, you know, contrast with uh, Europe and uh, the Near East, the Levant and India, and that China has avoided, uh, you know, massive uh, cultural changes and like, you know, the just like fall and ruin of whole civilizations in the way that like, you know, we all kind of recognize, right, that the Roman Empire, you know, is not in existence anymore, that it collapsed, that that civilization, like even just the material culture of that civilization collapsed. China in at least American pop culture is all often held up as being really kind of the exact opposite of that as being this single continuous civilization from like deepest antiquity up until now, you know, absorbing conquerors and uh, even, you know, colonial attempts, absorbing them, right, rather than than falling to them. And so even though I'm not sure that's a real accurate way to depict the story of, of, of Chinese civilization or Chinese culture, it's certainly an image we have in the pop culture. And that is, I think, a real good foil to the images of America that we get in this novel. Yeah, China is, and we might have mentioned this before, like as much as a fantasy land to Olivia as America seems to be to Weir as well. And that's kind of another maybe comparison we can we can make in this. I mean, we also see in the text that Weir kind of mixes up Chinese, Japanese, like whatever the, the different nationalities and cultures are and people groups in China. In the text, Olivia corrects him and then also tells him that there are Chinese people in America now, too, kind of hinting at the immigration of the Chinese to America also, which took place in the 19th century, not too long, I think, uh, before this story takes place. So that's another kind of sense of immigration of new peoples in this country that um, Wolf is playing with, though he's not looking so much as uh, at Chinese immigration as he is at um, Irish immigration and then also the ruthless expansion of the American peoples that displaced the Native Americans. Um, but it's here in the text as well. Right. And we do see this with the families in Cashinsville and even with Olivia's suitors, right? Where uh, Weir and and Blaine, these are, are names that seem to you know suggest, if not indicate, that these families came to America perhaps before the United States was itself in existence, that that these are families that came to uh, North America in the 17th or maybe the 18th century and have been here for a very long time. And they have all this old money, even though, right, definitely these are going to be branches of families that felt some need to leave, you know, the East Coast, to, you know, I don't know, leave New York and, and Philadelphia if we're thinking about Weir as a, a Dutch name and and move West. But thinking of these as skians of families that sort of founded the, the United States, the sort of real early colonial experience. But then we do have one of the, the suitors is Jimmy McAfee. It's an Irish name. He's not presented as being the, the son or grandson of an Irish immigrant, but he he works, even though he's wealthy, right? He he works. He is involved in commerce uh, in a way that is, you know, in the fairy tale, at least presented as being bad and being dirty. And so, yeah, we can see the sort of immigrant history of America even represented in the way that these suitors show up in the fairy tale. Well, let's hone in on these suitors now. And we talked in our last episode about how Part of the structure of these excursions and Weir's interaction with the suitors is these senses of history, and they emerge almost naturally, but they're part of the template of these three stories that Weir 
tells. I think, Glenn, you're kind of chomping at the bit here to start with Blaine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Blaine throws down this gauntlet during the dinner when, you know, Blaine is talking about how important being part of these old families is. And Blaine says this, there is properly no history, Alden, only biography. A man is only a bundle of his relation, a knot of roots. So I know you have issues with this, Glenn, (laughs) but uh, this also, this seems to be a passage that is in line with Weir's description of kind of the great man of America or of the West who has these hobbies, who is the expert in this thing that's unremunerative, that that history isn't made necessarily by these men. So what we have is biography. Yeah, I have real issues with, with this. I mean, this is a real gauntlet, right, thrown down, I think, against any 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 professional historian. But even before I, I get into that, and I, I promise not to get into that too much and with too much technicality, and I will I will restrain myself as well. But <laughs> you know, this just goes back to to thinking again about the sort of like class consciousness of uh, of the experiences here in in Cashinsville and by these families, right? That this is a statement that can only be made by someone with inherited wealth and inherited property, right? The idea that the way to understand the past is to understand who it is you got your land and money from, which is just not something that most of us can actually say, right? Like this is not an experience that most people have. And that's really the only way that this worldview makes any sense. So yeah, it does make sense for a wealthy person, you know, a person with wealth and and power and station in society to think of history as a collection of stories about people. But that's totally alighting and, and really, frankly, just erasing, right, the experiences that most of us have where things like institutions and uh, economic forces beyond our control or understanding are things that matter, right? Right. And, and, you know, one thing that strikes me, because I, this passage really does work in concert, in my mind, with uh, Weir's earlier digression about men who have these hobbies, who are experts in some small field or something along those lines, is that those people aren't necessarily impacting the movement or direction of institutions or even the flow of history which is a a phrase maybe I shouldn't use in their own time, (laughs) but that doesn't erase their worth. But then maybe as they're characterized in history, they're lumped into larger groups rather than being as sole actors. And Blaine, as somebody who is a person with power and wealth, can think of himself as a sole actor in history who can change or alter the course of a town and its development and its industry, whereas everybody else would be thought of as people who work for that, regardless of their unremunerative hobbies. Yeah. So if we're thinking about like what history is and and look what history is is kind of complicated. I mean, just thinking of like how do you define the word history? It has many different senses uh, in the way that we use it casually versus the way that we use it academically. Right? We often use the word history just to like refer to the past, though that's actually a terrible usage of that word, and we shouldn't employ it in that way <laughs> at all. Right? But we we so frequently do. Right? I mean, like in the eighties, this was a real popular thing to say. Like you're going to be history. Also, you're going to be toast. I don't know. I never understood what that one meant, but I used it a lot. 
lot, you know, when I was the same age we're is in this chapter, I guess. But the way that I think we should really think about history is that what history is, is the, the search to understand change in human societies over time. And Blaine is offering us one way of understanding that, which is to say, to understand it through biography, through the stories of individual people. And as we've been saying, right, that does make sense for someone of Blaine's power and wealth, that uh, for him, change can happen in the world because he wills it, because he has the resources and the power to make his will felt in the world, because he controls this financial institution of the, the bank. But most humans, since we invented civilization, have been subjugated, have been subjects, have been slaves, in fact, more otherwise uh, oppressed in some economic way. And have not had this type of agency in the in in the world, right? And so, you know, history as narratives, as a, a collection of stories, and maybe history in particular as the story of how we got here is the sense in which Blaine is employing this term history here. But this is not at all what professional historians do, right? What professional historians do is to try to understand what past societies were like, trying to understand why changes happen and not like, you know, abstractly, but like specifically, right? Like, hey, why do we wear pants instead of togas, right? People in the past wore togas, but no one's wearing togas anymore. Why did that happen? Or, hey, why did inhabitants of the Roman Empire become Christians? Also, what did it even mean to become a Christian around the year 200, right? Did converting to uh, a new religion mean the same thing for uh, someone living in Athens in the year 200 uh, as it meant to someone living in, say, like uh, a much more rural community in France or, you know, Gaul, I should say, Italy, maybe, in the year 200? And how do those religious conversion experiences compare to Gene Wolfe's own religious conversion experience uh, when he came home from the Korean War, for example, right? Also, we can ask things like, hey, what were Christian communities like in the year 200? What did they do? What were their rituals? What did they think or believe You know, about like this or, or, or that uh, theological problem, maybe cosmological problem, scriptural problem as well? Like That is the sort of thing that historians actually get up to. It's not just you know, telling a collection of, of, of stories about people who, uh, you know, used to be alive but are dead now as a way of explaining, like, why I inherited a bank. <laughs> right. I, I mean, we've already seen Weir uh, kind of be fascinated with these great men of history. We've had Napoleon mentioned. We've had Columbus. The opera about the Tsars was mentioned as well of Russia. And we, this is something we've been tracking as a motif in the story as well. And we might think in terms of this being a memoir, an autobiography of a sort, uh, that part of what impresses Weir about Blaine is just this idea of history, that Weir wants to be powerful enough that his biography is history, the same way that Columbus's bi a biography of Columbus is a kind of history or a biography of Napoleon is a kind of history uh, that it's history, uh, I should say, not, you know, history in terms of, as you're describing, not uh, a piece of toast. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and we can contrast this, I think, with Professor Peacock as 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 well, where the thing that Blaine is really doing is is thinking about history as you know this collection of of stories about the past and in particular stories about individuals in the past in order to explain how we got this way but to put that another way right that for blaine studying history is about knowing 
what stuff happened in the past and how that is relevant for now. But that's also just not what historians do or like what any scholar does, what scholars do, what scientists do is ask questions, right? Is look at the world, look at the, the cosmos and see questions, see puzzles, see mysteries that need to be solved, questions that need to be answered, and then do research or conduct experiments to try to answer those questions. And so history is not the past. It is not the stuff that happened in the past. History is the quest to understand what happened in the past, to answer questions about what happened in the past. Also, specifically to do that through uh, written artifacts, right? The written records of the past, as opposed to like, you know, say material artifacts, which is what archaeologists do. And that's where we can see Professor Peacock, who, you know, historian is not something that Weir pitches as one of his possible, you know, actual professions here <laughs> as a professor. I think anthropologist is what Weir seems to come down on. It's, I don't know, it seems to be what we've come down on, you know, casually anyway, without really, I think, you know, going at it. But Professor Peacock has a scholarly approach to the study of the past. And one of the ways that we see this very clearly is that he understands that there's a question about how is it that human beings got to this continent to begin with, and that because we don't have written records from Native Americans, from pre-Columbian Native Americans, you know, we have to think of other ways to answer that question, and that there are several different possible, plausible even, explanations for where Native Americans came from and how they got to the Americas. And He's into that as a question, and he's into one of the a very recent potential explanation, one that we've 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 all come to accept as being uh, the case. But that he's on top of that literature, he's involved in, well, maybe not involved in, but is at least engaged in that debate. There, uh, we also see him approaching even the the cave itself, not by giving answers, but by speculating. Right. By asking questions and then looking around to see if he can verify those questions. Right. He's interested in what are the remains uh, that are here. We also see him. And I think this is extremely important when he's telling us about the skull that he found the first time he went out to Eagle Rock that he thought was a dinosaur skull. And it turned out not to be, it turned out to be a sloth skull. And he took the skull to, you know, an, an expert, you know, in this field that he's not an expert in paleontology and um, is telling a story to Olivia and Weir about how he was wrong about something, about how he, his hypothesis was proven wrong by the evidence, which I just don't think is something Blaine's ever, ever going to do, but is also just a great example of what scholars actually do, is try to evaluate evidence in order to answer questions and be willing to be wrong. And Weir, it turns out, is bored by all of this, right? Like he's, <laughs> he's, he, he hates it. It's not something that appeals to him as interesting, though he remembers it clearly. It doesn't appeal to him in the same way that Blaine's sense of history appeals to him. And I think then maybe we get a sense of Weir's motivation to rise to the level of Blaine rather than be a part of a system that is studied by Professor Peacock. Uh, and maybe we see some of Weir's core motivations emerge here in, in the contrast in the way these two men think about history. But this kind of leaves us with where McAfee really generates a sense of history for Weir during their excursions. Uh, and uh, it, it's very different than these other two men. I wonder if you have any specific thoughts about this, Glenn. 
Well, it's very much tied to objects. And I suppose that, you know, in some sense, Professor Peacock is tied to objects as as well. But really, I think where so much uh, of the past comes into the, the McAfee story is in uh, terms of objects in the, the department store. Uh, but then also, this is where we get the, the business with the, the Civil War Memorial. And so this is really where we get the idea of public history, right? Where we get the idea of, of uh, the way that a community is going to think about its past and, and, and then also, you know, memorialize that past, commemorate that past, really decide upon a kind of established interpretation of what the Civil War was and what it meant for Cashinsville. And, you know, like, here's the sort of stamp of approval on that version of that, that story that, that is an anchor point for us to have an identity together as uh, as a community. This sense of memorialization is even found, I think, on on the teapot at the Lawrence House, which is also part of McAfee's story, part of McAfee's uh, excursions with Weir, where the f- faces of the people who owned the Lawrence teapot are painted onto this. And so, yeah, I'm not quite sure how McAfee is supposed to draws into the sense of memorialization of public history, but this is where Wolf has decided to put this sense of history in the novel. Right. And and McAfee's interest in in objects, I think, is also really important in that we're told that he is interested, genuinely interested in antiques. So he does actually have uh, an interest in this egg that is separate from his interest in Olivia, though I think it is fair to say, right, that his interest in Olivia outweighs his his interest in the egg, you know, just like qua egg. But uh, <laughs> McAfee is interested in objects that people had in the past. And this is, I think, one of these places where we can see that thing that Weir was talking about, right, where, where people have these interests, that McAfee's business is buying and selling selling goods to people, right? Buying goods from manufacturers and then selling them to uh, consumers for, you know, a small markup, essentially. And he seems then also to have an interest in the goods that people in the past had, because he's, he's interested in what he sells and how there has been change over time in, like, consumer goods in in home goods he's also really into right what goods are now he knows all about the washing machines he's also thinking about where washing machine technology might go in the future he is into his roadster he knows about the engine of his roadster and uh, knows what it's capable of and and really thinks about the car you know this roadster as a a tool uh, that he is using and that he is knowledgeable of where you know the other car that we really get shown in this story is Blaine's car and we just you know for Blaine that's a status symbol it's not an object that is in itself interesting it's interesting only in that it broadcasts his wealth to other people uh but i think in this way McAfee's interest in objects is actually something that links past and present and future in this story. Since you evoked future here, let's move (laughs) into the future and visions of the future. Uh, There are two moments in this chapter where I think we can safely say we see apocalyptic imagery emerge. There's Weir's dream where he goes over this wall, which, you know, hey, that's in that uh, Scheherazade story as well, and is in a world that is in... Stephen King's terms, like in the Dark Tower series, it's a world that seems to have moved on. The other sense of uh, the end of time or the apocalypse that we get is in Olivia's conception of the deep future and the end of humanity. 
Olivia's comments come up in the context of, you know, joking about killing dogs to bury <laughs> something up there for future people to find and wonder about. And Olivia says that, well, there won't be anyone then. But, you know, in, in, in the same relation that we have to this deep past, there won't be a conscious being to, to relate to us as the deep past. And she has in mind here, I think, something like a scientific apocalypse, the end of consciousness, the true end of history, in a sense. She says, you know the history of a species. Each starts as an obscure new animal inhabiting a small area and rare even in that. Then, for some reason, conditions become favorable for it. It spreads and spreads and spreads and becomes the most common creature of all. If it is a grazing animal like us, it will increase until the plains are black with its kind. Peacock rightly points out to Olivia here that like technically humans aren't grazing animals. <laughs> but I think I think Olivia has in mind here the using up of all available resources more than she has in mind the idea of sheep or cows or buffalo eating up too much grass. This to me, I mean, it may be the case for you as well, Glenn, feels like an idea of apocalypse, of nature maybe rebalancing. And that, that is like a, a scientific apocalypse in nature. And we know that Olivia is like super into science. But this idea, this sense of apocalypse is one without, you know, in the Christian cosmology, a new heavens and a new earth. It's one without a savior. So in light of Weir's sense that we saw in chapter one of nature reclaiming cities, and with Olivia's sense here of the scientific apocalypse or scientistic apocalypse, as I'm calling it here, why do you think Wolf is including these images in this book so far? There is so much in this story so far about human civilization just ending, right? Losing the battle against nature. And I, I think that, you know, this is why it's important to situate the digression about Cashinsville into this narrative of humans attempting to, uh, you know, subdue, subjugate nature, to harness nature to their own will, even though we know that ultimately that is futile, right? That humans are, are you know, humanity, human beings, homo sapiens, not going to exist forever. Uh, something is going to be the undoing of, of our ability to survive in the environment that we live in. Some kind of environmental change is going to happen. It might be an environmental change that we bring on ourselves. That's what is pitched here by Olivia in terms that would have been popular in the, the 1920s, these sort of Malthusian ideas about population pressure, which actually really dominate up until uh, the 1960s, 1970s, when it starts to be replaced by uh, issues with uh, pollution and then also climate change, things that Wolf definitely had uh, his, his finger on, or I don't know, the pulse of which Wolf definitely had his finger on is what I'm trying to <laughs> say there, right? We've seen him write about those things before and is obviously very concerned uh, about about them. And so, yeah, we have Olivia here as a, a kind of, you know, kind of prophet, really. But, you know, why that's in this book, other than that it's an interest that Wolf has, that Wolf does actually seem to be sounding an alarm in some ways in, in, in other stories, for sure. Uh, I think it's here because I think death is the central theme of this book so far. Everything dies. Everything dies. And yet I, I, I get the sense that Wolf, at least, doesn't believe that consciousness will die. And and we'll see if that becomes a major part of this book or not uh, as we continue reading the novel. 
we should also take a moment to look at, at Weir's dream here. Um, we've already talked a lot, really, about the bird imagery associated with Aunt Olivia. There's bird imagery in this dream. We've seen bird and music associations with Olivia in the in the uh, fairy tale. One other clearly repeated symbol, though, is present in this dream. Uh, and to me, that's the presence of this earthenware troll with a, quote, fierce, sad face and stumpy limbs. This seems to me to be an amalgamation, perhaps, of the three suitors. You know, it's on a pedestal, so it's above the muddy earth. Uh, that's maybe Blaine type stuff. It's earthenware and a troll, so like dirt, earthy, so maybe peacock, and then, you know, it's stumpy. Is that a, fi- is that a fair synonym for stocky and bald? I, I've been I've, I've been called that. I think so. Um, you know, and it's also a bridge troll, so like it charges people to cross. It's got to have to do with McAfee. You know, before I ask you what your sense of the troll is as a symbol in the stream and maybe what you get from this dream, I, I also want to say that um, this is an example of like the consciousness that remains in a landscape that is full of distant symbols, something maybe like a beginning place to approach the past or a place to think, to begin to think about uh, the continuation of the present into the future. So this is, this is a weird kind of place that is where consciousness is stuck only with symbols and kind of no other context. And, and in that sense, it's maybe apocalyptic in contrast to Olivia's sense of the apocalypse in some sense. But anyway, the troll is the real symbol we don't have a handle on here. What did you make of it? Yeah, there's so much going on here in in this apocalyptic vision, right? I mean, this is a, you know, it's a, a vision of a world with no people, but the the artifacts of of people and almost you know the the sense that there have been people, like it's a haunted apocalypse and uh well it's it's a it's a creepy dream it has given me this dream in fact i've been having <laughs> dreams like this because we read about this and it's very very cool but the troll itself right as this sort of amalgamation of the the suitors uh, as you suggest and, and and as i you know believe as well brandon is i think here to cement for us right the the idea that None of these suitors are going to make it uh, with Olivia, right? That she's not going to pick one of them. That it's. It turns out this is you know not the Merchant of Venice where there are only the three suitors that uh, actually get, you, you get to pick a fourth one, right? We know that there's another one coming. Uh, we haven't met him yet, uh, and so I think you know that is symbolized here in in the troll. Yeah, I think that's right, and also the stream includes Weir's sadness about Olivia's death as well. The dead bird that turns into the paper lantern. So it really is a dream that is full of symbols of things that we've already encountered or we can expect to encounter in in the text as well that also relate extensively to, to chapter two here. Well, the last thing we should really do here is Compare some of the techniques that Wolf uses via Weir to address how Weir's memories and imagination are working. And by compare, I mean between chapter one and chapter two. (laughs) Uh, To me, this chapter feels a lot more narratively coherent compared to chapter one. Just a spoiler alert, we talked about how this chapter might have been the result of the first card being turned over in the thematic app perception test. I did read ahead just a hair. That's going to turn out not to be the case, uh, though you would never know that by reading this chapter until you got to the next one. 
But another thing we see in this chapter compared to chapter one are like kind of fewer visits to this imaginary doctor's office. There's a literal structure to this chapter in the form of the pseudonarratives, narratives clear distinctions between the past and present, uh, between Weir's own world and a fictional world. What are some of the distinctions that you see either in technique or in, in narrative ideas uh, that represent this memory and imagination between chapters one and chapters two? Yeah, I mean, the, the big thing here, right, is that chapter two is actually just a memoir. And chapter one was not, I would not characterize chapter one as a memoir, that chapter one has all this crazy business about the imaginary visit to the doctor's office that is actually we're talking to a, an imaginary person in his mind, but maybe he's also remembering a doctor's visit, right? And this is where, although, you know, we've had an argument about this, you know, and are going to continue to have an argument about this, <laughs> where Wolf is writing that in such a way that we have to ask if Weir is even remembering any of this stuff, or if he's actually, you know, actually hopping through time, like he's, you know, Scott Bakula or, or something like that, right? <laughs> he's trying to put right what once went wrong. But then we get to chapter two, and there's just nothing, nothing like that. It's just a memoir. Uh, chapter two is when we find out that indeed Weir is writing this down, that this account, this memoir exists as a material object in the world, which is not at all clear in, in chapter one. It, it was not clear that this was something that was being written down so much as we were being told a story you know, in the mind of, uh, of a narrator, uh, but that we were there like, you know, with his thoughts, but not necessarily with writing that he's committing to paper. But now we know that that's true. Or at least we know that that's true for for chapter two, uh, maybe if we want to be really careful here. But yeah, that's a real uh, dramatic change that has put our bickering about this on pause. But I think, you know, not ended it. <laughs> yeah. And, and just to be clear, you're referring to Scott Bakula from Quantum Leap, not Lord of Illusions. Yeah, right. Uh, or just... Star Trek Enterprise, which I did invoke in our previous episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you on this. I really think that this feels more like a memoir, that the first chapter is kind of like the tuning up of the orchestra. And then this chapter, the orchestra is just kind of playing. Still, though, this is a huge chunk of text. And Weir has decided to focus on this summer. And we have to wonder why that is. It's kind of we're, we're thinking ahead in the novel. Maybe we can take a moment to make some predictions, even though I just said chapter one feels like he's tuning up the orchestra and this feels like the orchestra playing this chapter uh, to mix a metaphor here. It still feels like Wolf is setting the table as a writer uh, and that there's so much we still don't know and there's so much more to come. So I guess the question I have is, uh, what is the reason do you think for this chapter in particular, this summer, taking up so much time in Weir's memory as he's thinking about writing down his memoir, the things that structured the meaningful events in his life. I think there are two things from this chapter that matter to Weir's later life. I, you know, we've been doing a lot of speculating about Margaret Lorne, and I'm just going to double down on that and say, I think she becomes super important in his life. This is the summer he he first met her. It might not be their like real introduction in the sense that it's not like, uh, you know, the next week after the affair of the Chinese egg, you know, Weir's going out to the farm to hang out with her. That's clearly not going to happen. But she, I think, 
think is going to become important in his life. And this is the first moment that he met her. So that really matters. I also think Olivia really, really matters to Weir's life. Uh, For one, this moment here at age nine is not the moment when he's telling people about the Napoleon statue. He's older when he does that. He tells us uh, in chapter one, he's older than than nine. So Olivia is going to continue to be important to him. And it's actually seems possible that his parents like just don't ever come back from Europe. And he ends up living with Olivia, you know, until he becomes an adult. I, I don't know if that's going to turn out to be true, but that's certainly a possibility. But there is also looming over all of this business with Olivia, the clear sense that they've had some kind of falling out. They have some kind of falling out uh, in his life, perhaps as an adolescent, perhaps, uh, you know, when early in his adult life, and that he regrets that, that this is another, uh, another incident from his past that he regrets and that haunts him in the same way that Bobby Black's death does. A haunt is the right word to use there. Not only do we get what I think is a, a really beautiful elegy for Olivia in this chapter and Weir's regret that he didn't recognize how amazing she was while she while he was alive or he wasn't able to demonstrate that to her. There's also a moment in this chapter as Weir is touring his creepy mansion that Olivia's still there, that she's there painting in one of the rooms. And so he's certainly haunted by her in either a literal or a kind of emotional sense. That's absolutely true. And I think when I say that, I think Wolf is setting the table here that Olivia is one of the most important relationships in Weir's life. And we should spend a lot of time with her to understand why that is. And I'm excited to see where this is going. I mean, I'm, you know, super hooked on this book. This book is, I think, even just so far, I think it is fair to say that this is a masterpiece of a, of a story. And I'm excited to get to chapter three. Yeah. I mean, as I said, like, I was, I, I'm so shocked to discover how much American founding of America, like immigration, American expansionism, genocide, <laughs> like how much Wolf is packing into this when I've seen it referred to so often as, as a kind of a haunting memoir. My God, there's so much to this story, and I am so anxious, actually, to to read (laughs) it and to finish it. I'm kind of like, we got to move faster. But as as we're looking forward to the future of this novel and, uh, I don't know, our own future here in recording episodes on the podcast... That's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. And uh, yeah, that that brings us to the end of, of chapter two. We spent a long, long time on this chapter. If you've got things to say about this chapter or things to say about the dumb things that we ourselves have had to say about this chapter, we hope you'll drop by the forum at claytemplemedia.com or come over uh, onto our uh, subreddit, the Clay Temple Media subreddit, and uh, let us know what you think about any of these topics that we've brought up or let us know uh, things that uh, you think we should have talked about that we did not. We will be back on December 7th with the first recap episode for Chapter 3. And in the meantime, we hope you'll check out some of our other shows if you aren't already listening to them. And uh, if you are, if you've exhausted all of that other content that we do, we hope you'll check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media. But until next time, until we come back for Chapter 3, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.